It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Dear Father, we thank you for uh, giving us your words in the Bible. We thank you for loving us so much. Thank you for opening our eyes to who you are. And we just pray that you would help us to see today and hear the words that you would have us to hear. We pray that you would guide Tom and guide him through your word, Lord, and, uh, as he brings it for us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. I hope you had a great and blessed Thanksgiving. If you were given the choice either to spend the rest of your life stuck in a man-sized hamster wheel or to have your very own custom-fitted Iron Man suit complete with its own unlimited fuel source, which one would you choose? What if you could have something that would make that Iron Man suit look like a major limitation? Our passage this morning is about abandoning the futile hamster wheel of works-based righteousness and putting on the marvelous freedom and usefulness of unreserved faith in the one who loved us and delivered himself up for us. What you see on the screen there is just an overview of where we're going this morning. In the first six verses, Paul makes another contrast between the bondage of law-keeping and the freedom of faith working through love. The first option is a graceless, useless, Christ, Christless life. The second, faith working through love, is the patient, productive, spirit-directed life. After Paul presents those two possible ways of approaching life during our time on this earth, then he in the last five verses, explains that he is trusting God not only to make us free, but to keep us free in verses 7 through 12. Last week, in the second half of of chapter 4, Paul set before us the true Old Testament story of two women, Hagar and Sarah, and the two sons that those two women bore to Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Now, he did so in order to contrast two radically different identities that match up with two possible ways that men might seek to receive blessing from the hand of God. One of those ways results in slavery, and the other brings marvelous freedom. After presenting that contrast, based on that historical 
account, Paul then moves in the first chapter of first verse of chapter five from theology to exhortation. We actually looked at this verse last week because it's transitional between these two parts of the of the chapter. He presents the point of his Old Testament lesson to the believers in Galatia. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. But what kind of slavery and what kind of freedom is Paul talking about? Slaves to what and freed to what? Well, here in a nutshell is what I see Paul revealing to us, declaring to us about the slavery and the freedom. The gift of Christ's righteousness credited to our account through faith alone in Christ alone, not by works, that gift frees us completely and forever from depending on our own efforts to earn God's favor and blessing. In short, the gift of Christ's righteousness frees us from the futility of man-centered righteousness. Our previous efforts to please God, based on what we can muster up from within ourselves, amounted to slavery. But God's gift of righteousness has freed us to gratefully and joyfully serve God as children of promise, not of law. Children of the King of Kings who never again have to strive to be acceptable to our holy God. Because we have been forever reckoned to be 100% righteous in His eyes. Not because of anything that we've done, but entirely because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. Any effort to return to law-keeping as a way to become righteous in God's eyes is an abandonment of that glorious freedom that we have in Christ. It is a return to slavery. Any step in that direction is like trading an Iron Man suit for a seven-foot hamster wheel, except that the actual freedom that we enjoy in Christ makes that Iron Man suit look like a kid's bicycle with training wheels. In verse 2, Paul tells his mostly Gentile audience in Galatia, that if they receive circumcision, as the Judaizers are insisting they must, Christ will be of no benefit to them. Then in verse 3, he explains why that's the case. He says, every man who receives circumcision is under obligation to keep the whole law. He's repeating the same essential point that he made back in chapter 3 and verse 10. If you want to depend on your own efforts at law-keeping to make yourself acceptable to God then you need to understand a couple of things. First, God is perfectly righteous, and he doesn't grade on the curve. Law-keeping is an all-or-nothing proposition. If circumcision has anything to do with our righteous standing before God, then so does every other command and statute and ordinance contained in the law of Moses. Circumcision was the first commandment before the law was given. But there was a whole lot that came after that in the days of Moses. And you have to keep all of them perfectly. If you want to meet God's standard of righteousness by law-keeping, you have to bat a thousand. One miss, just one. And you have fallen short of the glory of God and you're eternally 
condemned. There's one other thing you need to know. You started out eternally condemned. Even if it were possible for you to keep the law perfectly from now on, which it isn't, if you have ever sinned in the past, you're already condemned. In fact, whether you like it or not, you were doomed by the sin of Adam that made you a sinner along with all the rest of us. You can argue with God about that till you run out of words, <laughs> but it won't change the reality of it. So, any movement back toward law-keeping is a step of utter, utter futility. Now, in verse 4, Paul comes right out and he clarifies exactly what he's getting at in verses 1 through 3. The Holman Christian Standard renders verse 4 very well. It says, You who are trying to be justified by law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. The New King James takes that phrase alienated from Christ. It renders it estranged from Christ. That's also a good way to put it. Now, some translations say severed from Christ. There's nothing wrong with that language, but from our perspective, we might look at that and think that it means it's possible for a child of God to lose his relationship with Jesus Christ, his righteous standing before God after he has received that gift of righteousness. That is simply not possible, biblically speaking, and it's certainly not what Paul is saying here. Paul's point is that there is only one way for men to be declared righteous in the eyes of God. And only one way for men to be made righteous in practice. And that one way is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The only righteousness that you will ever have is an undeserved gift from God to you, paid for entirely by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's His righteousness. It's not yours. As soon as you insert yourself into that mix, you turn away from Christ and you fall away from grace. That doesn't mean you lose your salvation because your salvation is God's work, not yours. You don't get to undo what God has done. What it means is that you take a step off of the path of life and blessing and you start heading back to the old doomed path of death and cursing. God will not let you back on that path. Paul is going to make that clear very shortly. But that doesn't change the fact that when you start depending again on anything that comes from you to make you righteous before God or even to improve your standing in the eyes of God, you are turning away from grace and freedom, and you're turning back to works and slavery. And those two ways do not intersect. In verses 5 and 6, Paul moves from negative to positive, from rebuke to affirmation. And he begins with the source of our sanctification. He says in verse 5, Through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of righteousness. If you want something to think about that will sort you out day by day, moment by moment, think about that. Through the Spirit, by faith, 
we wait. And that for which we are waiting is the hope of righteousness. I loved the worship this morning because it was just, it was all about this. And that wasn't planned, by the way. God does that all all the time. If you read Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, you'll get the expanded version of Galatians 5.5. The righteousness for which we now wait and which we fully trust God to provide is the finishing out of God's gift of Christ's own righteousness given to us. It's the gift that will be fully realized on our glorification day and will not be fully realized until our glorification day. That future day when God will free us not only from the penalty and power of sin, He already did that for those who have trusted in Christ, but He will free us from the very presence of sin. He will redeem even these mortal bodies by transforming them into immortal, glorified, eternal bodies. And on that day, by the way, all of creation will be freed from the curse, from the corruption and death and decay and futility and violence that we brought upon it by our rebellion against God. Through the Spirit, by faith, we wait. That means that we don't demand perfect fulfillment here and now. Because God clearly tells us it's not all going to happen here and now. What we do have now is marvelous. Make no mistake about that. Having been justified by faith, we already have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Romans 5.1. We are already reconciled and at peace with God. And that's irreversible. We have been reconciled with God to enjoy blessed relationship with Him and with His people. And we get to take both of those with us. Those relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with His Beloved, begins the moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and it continues uninterrupted into eternity. But the fullness of our inheritance comes later, not now. Until that day, through the Spirit, by faith, we wait. Not complaining, not demanding that God put a rush on it. We wait, trusting His character, trusting His agenda and His timetable. By faith, because we trust in His trustworthiness, we embrace our share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ now, knowing that that suffering is only temporary. Knowing that this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. But Paul's declaration here in Galatians 5.5 is a little more specific in its focus than that. Paul is specifically talking about one aspect of that perfect fulfillment on glorification day. He's talking about the finishing out of God's gift of righteousness for which we are expectantly waiting. Now, this is a very important truth. Please track with me on this point, even if this is all you walk away with this morning. As children of God, 
we do not demand perfect righteousness now. Not of ourselves, not of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through the Spirit, by faith, we are waiting for the hope of that perfect righteousness. Hope that is seen is not hope. That means if you can get your hands on it now, it's not something you're hoping for anymore. If we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. That's the Christian life. We talked about that throughout the worship this morning. And it's a glorious hope because it's not a wish. It's the anticipation of the fulfillment of the promise made to us by the God who does not lie, who cannot lie. Certainly, we look for Christ in each other now. We recognize no man according to the flesh, because there's a new man here. Christ in us. We lovingly and humbly nudge each other along in trusting obedience to Christ. But we do not demand perfect righteousness now. Not of ourselves, not of our wives, not of our husbands, not of our children, not of the other people in our church. On the contrary, we know not to expect perfect righteousness now. And this is important because one of the most powerful tools in Satan's toolbox, one of the most effective things that he uses to draw us back into slavery to self-dependence is our impatience. We want perfect righteousness now. We don't like the idea that sanctification, that being conformed to Christ, is a process. We're impatient. We don't see in ourselves and we don't see in one another the perfect righteousness for which God tells us we are destined. So instead of waiting on God, we're tempted to make one of two grievous errors, both of which Paul talks about in this epistle and in this chapter. Either we try to rush God's schedule by reinserting ourselves into the mix. Lord, let me help you with that. And that puts us back into the slavery of works-based righteousness. Or, we just throw in the towel. We say, it's too frustrating to even care about righteousness if I still have to struggle every day against the sin that continues to dwell in this unredeemed flesh. It's a lot easier to just stop caring about righteousness. It's just eat, drink, and be merry. Our impatience, our unwillingness to trust and wait, feeds both of those all-too-common errors, legalism and licentiousness. So we just bounce from one to the other. You think you you only suffer from one of those? (laughs) Look a little harder. But here's what we're actually called by God to do now. Through the Spirit... By faith, we wait for the hope of righteousness. We wait expectantly, joyfully, longing for the finishing out of God's gift of Christ's righteousness, given freely to us who have no righteousness in ourselves. We hold fast to every good work of the Holy Spirit that increasingly conforms us to Christ, desiring never to turn back, to the way we used to do things. And we don't become discouraged by the disparity between what we will be and what we are now. Because we know that when we see Him, we will be like Him. 
because we'll see him as he truly is. We also don't become judgmental toward our brothers and sisters when we see that same disparity in them. Instead, through the Spirit, by faith, we patiently but eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness that we know is coming in full. That should put a smile on your face. We know where all of this is headed. And that knowledge makes sense of the struggles that we face daily. In verse 6, Paul presents one of the very clarifying verses in the New Testament where we get to see the mind of Christ in an amazing way. He tells us what doesn't matter and what does in this life. He says, For us who are in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Instead, what counts for everything is faith working through love. Now, I want to take the negative half of that declaration first. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Considering all the negative things that Paul has had to say in this epistle about circumcision and all that he says in other epistles about circumcision, it would be easy to conclude that he has a special kind of disdain for the ceremony of circumcision. But that would miss the point entirely. Paul's, uh, Paul uses the word circumcision or circumcised 40 times in his epistles. The greatest density of those references is found in Romans chapters 2 through 4 and right here in Galatians. And by the way, none of the other epistle writers even mentions circumcision. Paul singles out circumcision for many reasons, not the least of which is that it was the hot-button issue for the Judaizers. It was their acid test of righteousness for someone who claimed to be a Christ follower. If you were not circumcised, they considered you to be outside the community of God's redeemed people. If you were circumcised, that at least got you to first base on the righteousness scale. Then they could get on with scrutinizing how well you did with all the other external things that they considered necessary to be in really good standing with God. Things like a kosher diet and disciplined observance of the Sabbaths and the feasts and the holy days. But we'll miss Paul's critically important point in Galatians 5-6 if we don't see both halves of what he says here about circumcision. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul never, never says that it's evil for a Jew to be circumcised. In fact, Paul circumcised Timothy himself. Timothy was half Gentile and half Jew. The point of everything that Paul has to say about circumcision is this. Anyone who gets circumcised thinking that it will gain him a righteous standing in the eyes of God or improve his standing in the eyes of God is believing a heresy. The very notion that there is a cause and effect relationship between circumcision and righteousness is heresy. Anyone who believes such a thing is negating grace and is making the crucifixion of Jesus Christ of no account. 
Because the cause and effect relationship works the other direction. In Romans chapter 4, Paul makes this clear. He says, okay, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. When did that happen? He says, did that happen when Abraham was circumcised or before that, when he was uncircumcised? And his answer, of course, is before Abraham was circumcised. Abraham was declared righteous in chapter 15. And it was a very long time before chapter 17 when he was commanded to be circumcised. And then Paul says this in Romans 4.11. He says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Circumcision was an external picture of an internal reality. And that was the case so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised. That righteousness might be reckoned to them as it is to those who are circumcised and have faith in the promise of God. The common ground is the faith, not the circumcision. Circumcision was a sign, it's a symbol of the righteousness God had already credited to Abraham's account when he believed God's promise years before. But the Judaizers turned that completely upside down. They were treating circumcision not as a sign of a right standing before God already received through faith, but as the cause of a right standing before God received by works. That's what Paul is doing battle with here. For Paul, circumcision is shorthand for every work that men do to earn or to keep God's favor. When you read Paul's epistles, that's how you should think of that word in most of the instances in which it occurs. The works-based righteousness that we are tempted to embrace today isn't about circumcision. I don't ever hear that discussed. But every time you see the word circumcision in any of Paul's letters in a context that's talking about how men think they get or stay righteous in the eyes of God, you can substitute hundreds of other actions of men, whether those actions are commanded by God or contrived by men, including, by the way, Sabbath-keeping, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. There is not one religious ritual that even touches our standing in the eyes of God. Because that righteous standing is received only one way. By faith in the only one who is righteous. It is Christ's righteousness, not ours. And because He did for us what we could never do for ourselves, that puts us in the position of utter dependence. And you know what utterly dependent people do? They entrust themselves to the one on whom they depend. That's faith. That's why our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification has to be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Absolutely everything about our righteousness comes back to faith in Christ. Faith in the one who loved us and delivered himself up to make us righteous, not with our righteousness, but with his.
External ceremonies and rituals and special days and reminders of what God has done are effects. They are outworkings. They are signs of what's already already established. Every time we confuse the symbols or the outworkings with the substance, we begin to drift toward heresy and self-dependent slavery. So we need to guard against doing that. The symbols that God gives us are, are beautiful. They're valuable when they represent what we declare, what we know is already true, and what we are declaring through the symbols already to be true. If we go the other direction, everything gets messed up. The positive side of Paul's declaration in verse 6 is important beyond measure. He says, Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. What counts for everything is faith working through love. Justification is God's righteousness imputed to us. That means credited to our account forever. But that's just the beginning. That's how our life in Christ starts. Jesus didn't die only so that he could cover us, clothe us in his righteousness. He died that he might, and this was read in the worship this morning, he died that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Titus 2.14 He died to make us, to make us like himself in the real world. He died to make us redeemed image bearers of God who actually do things that match up with God's character. And the way that happens is exactly the same way our justification already happened. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By trusting Jesus Christ day by day, moment by moment, we come to do good works that delight God and that are useful to God. And those works are labors of love. Faith working through love. See, we, we have a mental fixation, we have a sinful confusion that entices us to equate two things that actually have no connection with each other at all. Think of it as two lists. The first list contains all the things that we do that make us worthy of God's favor and blessing. The second list contains all the things that we do that please God and that serve God's purposes. The first list is empty. And the second list is endless. The list of things that we do that make us worthy of God's favor, that make us deserve blessing from the hand of God, has nothing on it. Not one thing. And it never will. Even the faith by which we now stand righteous in the eyes of God is a gift. But the list of things that we do as God's redeemed children that please God, the things that serve His purposes, that advance His kingdom, that show Him off, that attract people to Jesus Christ, that's a very long list that's still being written. And every single thing on that list comes back to just one reality in the heart of every redeemed man and woman and child, and that is love ignited by faith. Love as the irresistible response to the love that God poured out on 
us at the cross that we absolutely did not deserve. Love like a wildfire ignited by the flame of faith in Jesus. A fire that never stops burning because it's fueled by our trust in the one who never stops loving us. He never stops empowering us. He never stops making us useful for his eternal purposes. Because that's why he saved us. The love of God is a fire in the heart of every redeemed child of God that consumes and overwhelms selfishness and unforgiveness and bitter bitterness and anger and fear and doubt until love for God and love for people created in the image of God is all that remains. What matters in this life, what changes everything, is faith working through love. What we do that matters to God is not things done to merit God's favor. Those are just filthy rags in the eyes of God. It is the things done because Jesus Christ bought God's blessing for us forever. And he did so in the greatest act of love the universe will ever behold. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8 God loved the world, God loved the world in this way. He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. In this is love. That's John 3.16, of course. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son, sent His Son to be the propitiation, the payment for our sin. 1 John 4.10 Beloved, we should be delighted that that first list is empty and that that second list is endless. And we should be delighted that the two of them have nothing to do with each other. That's a confusion that we need to get rid of. The one and only thing that commends me to God is the same thing that commends you to God. And that changes the way we deal with each other. All our silly comparisons are just that. They're silly. There should be a lot of humility a lot of humility in our dealings with each other. In verses 7 to 12, Paul turns his attention from the Galatian believers to the Judaizers who were causing so much trouble in the Galatian churches, the ones Paul accuses of hindering the Galatian saints from obeying the truth. Paul says, This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Back in verse 6 of chapter 1, Paul said that the one who had called the Galatians called them by the grace of Christ. God's call to us is not about what we do for Him. It's about what Christ already did for us. Paul's pointing out that the call to return to a works-based righteousness doesn't come from God in any way. He makes it clear a little later, it doesn't come from Him. He says in verse, in verse 11, If I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. He's not going to have any part of that. The call to return to works-based righteousness is purely the contrivance of men. And by the way, it's a contrivance that characterizes every single man-made religion in the world. In verse 9, Paul says, A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. 
He already provided a real-life illustration of that principle for us, right? Back in chapter 2. When the Apostle Peter got drawn into the Judaizers' error just a little bit, the result was that all the rest of the Jews in Antioch, including Paul's faithful co-worker Barnabas, followed Peter's example just like lemmings running off a cliff. To use Paul's metaphor, Peter's little bit of leaven, yeast, had leavened the whole lump of dough. That's the way legalism works. It is exceedingly contagious. <laughs> Licentiousness, meaning indulging the desires of the flesh, is a serious threat to the church. Paul's going to address that threat in the second half of this chapter. But what makes legalism, works-based righteousness, far more dangerous, and by the way, far more the topic of both Christ's teaching and the epistles, what makes legalism far more dangerous is that it looks like righteousness. And it attracts saints like flypaper attracts flies. If you think that you're not prone to fall back to works-based righteousness, you need to bring your shields up. Phariseeism is alive and well today. In the last verse of this passage, in verse 12, Paul expresses his wish concerning the troublemakers, the Judaizers, who were threatening his beloved children in the faith. And he doesn't mince words, pun intended, A literal rendering of verse 12 would be, I wish that those who are troubling you would even cut themselves off. And without getting any more explicit than the text itself gets, Paul is saying, when it comes to their own circumcision, once these Judaizers start cutting, I wish they wouldn't stop until they're done. These words are as scathing as they possibly can be. Ever since the beginning of the first chapter of this epistle, Paul could not be any more condemning to the purveyors of self-made righteousness than he is. He starts by calling them accursed, and then he comes to this. But considering his consistently harsh and condemning words toward these teachers of false doctrine, Paul's approach to actually dealing with the threat is surprising. Whom does Paul actually trust to keep the Galatian saints from falling into this enslavement that the Judaizers are pushing? Whom does he trust to ultimately deal with these false teachers? Himself? No. He trusts God. In Galatians 5.10, Paul says this. He says I ha- to the Galatians, I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view but the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment whoever he is see Paul is confident that God is going to keep the Galatian saints from finally embracing this catastrophic error of the Judaizers just as he is confident that God will himself deal with these false teachers in due time And we should have that same confidence in God alone. That certainly doesn't mean that we don't have to get our our own hands dirty dealing directly with those who threaten the church of Jesus Christ with false teaching. 
Paul had already gone toe-to-toe with these Judaizers multiple times. And in the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus sternly rebukes a couple of those churches for tolerating false teachers in their midst, for failing to decisively drive them out of their midst. We, especially deacons, elders and deacons, have a sacred responsibility to protect his flock, even at our own peril. But our trust must never be in us. Our trust must always and only be in God. Why is this so important? Well, it goes back to that waiting thing. It means that we don't have to lose sleep at night wondering if the church is going to fall headlong into heresy. And the reason we don't have to live in fear of such a catastrophe is because the head of the church knows what he's doing. Here's a news flash. The good shepherd is actually a good shepherd. You can actually trust Jesus Christ to lead and protect His church. Too often, we act as if the well-being of His church depends on what we say and do. As if we're the determining factor in keeping God's church from self-destructing. Or keeping a saint from self-destructing. And it's not just elders and deacons who are guilty of this miscalculation. We confuse the instruments with the source. Certainly, God uses elders and deacons and every member of His body as His instruments to equip and build up and rebuke and correct His body. Read Ephesians 4, 1-16. through We all have a part in that, that building up. But it's a grievous error for us to think that we are the source of the church's well-being and health and usefulness to God. You know what happens when we lapse into that way of thinking? The very thing that Paul is rebuking in this passage. We start relying on our own efforts instead of on God's promise and God's faithfulness. We stop praying, or at least we stop praying in faith. And we take matters into our own hands. We become irritable and fearful and judgmental. We pounce on every infraction. We panic and we start creating lists of rules to impose on the church and on its members so that we can structure out the possibility of the waywardness that we fear in the church or of the apostasy that we fear. You know what God calls that mode of operation? Unbelief. We need to be ever mindful of the fact that Christ is the head of His church and that He's really, really good at it. He will not for one moment hand that role over to any one of us or to any group of us. Beloved, Let's rest in that marvelous reality. Let's rejoice in it. Let's take a chill pill and enjoy each other. Let's enjoy living as members of the household of God destined to dwell together in the presence of God spotless and blameless and holy, completely, completely clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and made righteous, conformed to Christ by His doing alone. 
By His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that let, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's enjoy that, guys. Let's enjoy each other. Through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in us, let us trust God entirely as we wait expectantly for the finishing out of His gift of righteousness, freely given to us. It is that gift alone that makes us stand now and that will make us stand forever in His presence. Let's rejoice in the overflowing well of God's love that He pours out on us daily in Jesus Christ. Let's trust Him. And then let's put that love to work for His purposes with hearts full of confidence and joy, never wondering about our well-being or our righteous standing in the eyes of God because that's all settled. It was for freedom. It was for that freedom that Christ set us free. Loving Father, thank You for this this day, this morning, it's a beautiful morning even with the rain because, Lord, we are here with each other and we have this marvelous privilege of lifting up your name, exalting our Savior, our Master, the lover of our souls, the one who bought us for himself. Father, teach us to live, teach us to live expectantly, willing to wait because what we're waiting for is worth it. And Father, it gives us great joy, even now, to know what's coming in Christ. We pray all these things in His name. May our thanksgiving be a delight in Your ears every day. Amen.